Each week, we examine the stadium beat from every angle. With athletes like Fred Lynn. The Green Monster, they call it that for a reason. About 12 foot of it from the ground to about 12 foot up was concrete. And if you hit that, I mean, it would just tear your skin off. Joe Theismann. What a great idea this is to be able to talk about the hallowed structures that exist today. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. Fans of the Miami Dolphins are in for a most pleasant surprise when they see the fully renovated and newly named Hard Rock Stadium. An enormous canopy shades the fans from the hot Miami sun while holding the sound in and making the stadium more intimate. Dolphins insider Matt Canada talks about the new Dolphins home field advantage. Next, we go down to the field at Denver's new Mile High Stadium. Longtime turf manager Ross Kirkhab talks about what it takes to make the field NFL ready. Later, we'll learn about touring the NFL the hard way. 16 weeks, over 25,000 miles in a 1967 VW bus. Documentary filmmaker Rhett Gromitbauer shares what he learned from the trip. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran tells us about the star, the giveaway, and guaranteed rates. But first, we go to the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, we all know some of the awful corporate naming rights attached to stadiums and arenas. Well, Chicago White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf broke the mold this week with the announcement of his less than popular naming rights deal with the company Guaranteed Rate. They are a Chicago-based online mortgage lending company. Sox fans told WGN and WLS they are not ready to embrace the name Guaranteed Rate Field. I was born and raised a Chicago White Sox fan. I think it's ridiculous. It'll always be Comiskey Park to me, no matter what they call it. As far as I'm concerned, they could have left it as Comiskey Park. They're changing it again? I still call it Comiskey. I couldn't even get used to US Cellular One. I was called a Comiskey Park, you know. It just sounds kind of cheesy to me. The Southside Ballpark has been known as US Cellular Field since 2003. Of course, prior to that, the forever popular Comiskey Park. Oakland A's owner John Fisher took a tour along the Port of Oakland this week in an area that could be the site of a future ballpark. It's an area long championed by Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff who talked with KTVU-TV. It is a site that I've been advocating for. This is a technical tour. I'm not going on it. You know, these are the engineers, but that uh, is a testament to the seriousness that the A's are paying right now to really deeply analyzing multiple sites. This is not the only one that they're looking at. Many believe the A's moving to a port site would free up the Oakland Coliseum area for a new stadium for the Raiders. Speaking of the Raiders, they continue to pursue efforts for a stadium deal in Las Vegas. This week, the team trademarked the name Las Vegas Raiders. University of Houston's new basketball arena will be called the Fertitta Center. Named after Tillman Fertitta, a member of the school's Board of Regents who is contributing $20 million to the venue. The school is rebuilding the former Hoffeyes Pavilion which, when complete, should be ready in 2018. 
And early fan reviews on the Vikings' new U.S. Bank Stadium indicate it will be a loud venue. Many attending a recent Luke Bryan concert said the sound bounced around the new venue, which comes as no surprise as the stadium roof features acoustically reflective material that many say will make the venue louder than its predecessor, the Metrodome. Vikings play their first contest in their new digs this weekend against the Chargers. Bill, that is the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Fans of the Miami Dolphins are in for a shock when they have a chance to see the fully renovated stadium, which we used to know as Sun Life Stadium. It has a new name, and it looks almost totally new. Hard Rock Stadium will be the name of it, and we're going to visit with Matt Canada, who knows all about this place. He's watched many games there, and he, like everybody else, is excited about the changes he's written for the Finsider. And so, Matt, we're happy to have you with us. I know you followed the Dolphins for a lot of years. Tell us all about it. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, and mm-hmm. you know, thank you for everyone listening. This stadium, as, you, as you've seen the evolution over time, it was shared with the Marlins back in the day. It's called Joe Robbie Stadium, called Pro Player Stadium. They moved from the Orange Bowl into this stadium. And it's always lacked that home field advantage type. The seats were always far away. So it was a multi-use stadium, baseball and football. The seats were far away from the field. The stadium quality, the turf wasn't the best. The stadium was overrun and outdated. And then the Marlins moved out. The stadium got a little better. But it still lacked that home field advantage. It still lacked that feeling of being at home. And plus, you had all those orange seats. So when the seats were empty, which was obviously quite often in Miami's time over the last several seasons, just mm-hmm. because of the way they played, you would just see ugly orange seats on television. They brought in Tom Garfinkel, the CEO. Now for the Miami Dolphins, he used to be the CEO of the San Diego Padres, who ironically, Mike D was the former CEO of the Dolphins. He went to the Padres uh, to become CEO, so they kind of swapped places there a little bit, which is kind of ironic. But anyways, Garfinkel came in, Stephen Ross, the owner, came on board, and he wanted to renovate the entire stadium. So they were, were looking at building a new stadium. They are looking at renovating the entire stadium. They finally figured out a way to get this done. And Stephen Ross threw in uh, all of his money, basically over $500 million of it, put this thing into two phases. The first phase, which happened last year, they redid all the seats in the stadium. They redid the luxury suites. They put in the 72 club on the 50-yard line, which came with mixed emotions and mixed feelings because, you know, those are for the really rich people and they want the home field advantage. And you're not going to get the rich people sitting there screaming the entire game. Mm -hmm. But anyways, they, they redid the concessions. They redid a lot of stuff inside. This past offseason was the roof. It was the canopy. And they have done a tremendous job getting this thing together. Like you said, you know, the lights are always on for the past several months in order to make the deadline of opening the stadium for this coming season. They had to work around the clock 24-7. Over 500 people there were pretty much working there every single day. So it's been a huge undertaking. Stephen Ross said this was the biggest and most difficult project he's ever done. And this guy has built many, many skylines in places like New York City. And but it looks like they're going to get there after a lot of praying, after a lot of uh, hope, after a lot of praying for good weather, which is what they've gotten. It looks like they are on schedule to open up in just a few weeks. One of the good pieces of this was it made Miami competitive for the Super Bowl once again. And of course, that yielded yeah. a favorable vote. Tell us about the importance of that. Stephen Ross and the Miami and the Miami Super Bowl committee have been shut out of Super Bowls for several years, and. It was fairly obvious why when the new when the new stadiums were getting awarded these Super Bowls, 
that's when Steven Ross knew he had to do something. He had to renovate the stadium if he wanted to ever bring a Super Bowl back to Miami. This is exactly what he's done. The reason why they hadn't come back to Miami is because when it downpoured uh, several years ago, you know, the big donors, the big sponsors weren't happy that they're sitting there soaked in the rain. So we've come to this now. You have the canopy over the field, uh, not over the field, over the seats. You have the field that is open. So if it does rain, the players will be impacted, but the fans will not be overhangs over right into the first row of the field. So it's really going to be a great environment. There are different features of the canopy, such as when, when the crowd noise goes up, it reflects back uh, to the top of the canopy and comes back down. Mm-hmm. So it's going to create a louder environment. One interesting and kind of funny thing that the Dolphins did purposely when they designed the stadium in the canopy is that the visiting sideline will never be in the shade. It will always be in the sun. If the sun is out, the visitors will always be directly into the sun. <laughs> so they even created more of a home field advantage with this canopy than just what appears on the surface. Matt, we want to wish you well. Continued good success with the Finsider, and uh, we hope to have you back again. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We'll love to come back. Matt Canada, our guest. When we return, we head to the sidelines at Denver's new Mile High Stadium and see the playing field through the eyes of longtime turf manager Ross Kirkab, who talks about watching great players, John Elway, Peyton Manning, compete on his finely manicured grass field. We'll be back with more Stadiums USA right here on Blog Talk Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. What is it like to see the great players of the National Football League playing on a field that you prepared, seeing history in the making and actually happening on a field that you are responsible for maintaining and keeping in the best possible condition? We're going to visit with a gentleman who certainly has had that experience managing the turf at what we now know as Sports Authority Field, Ross. Kirkab is our guest. We're going to talk certainly about what it is like battling the Denver climate. But before we get to that, I'd just like to ask you about the experience of seeing great players make great plays on a field that you have prepared for them. Well, Bill, thanks first off for uh, giving me the honor of speaking with you on your show today. A Um, pleasure. I would answer that. I guess if it didn't happen in the fourth quarter, I probably didn't see it. <laughs> you know, you're working the game and this, and it's usually about fourth quarter when you're like, okay, I think we're going to get this field through this game. I'll go out and enjoy it from the sideline. Um, but in all seriousness, saw a lot of great plays from a lot of different great players, some from players maybe you didn't know, from, you know, to players like a Peyton Manning that just can sometimes do things that maybe don't make the highlight real. When you're on the field, you look at it and just say, wow, hmm. <laughs> you know, just yeah. literally, wow. Yeah. So that that's pretty commonplace when you're on the sideline of an NFL field, the, the 
level of play, the level of athletes, the size and the speed is hard to describe. Uh, some of the hits, literally, you can feel through the ground, through your feet. It's quite an experience being on the sideline. You mentioned that you are busy during most of the game while it is taking place. Do you actually have communication directly with coaches or players related to uh, conditions on the field? Yeah, um, basically the big thing once a game gets going is weather issues. And generally your your sports field manager is your ipso facto weatherman. They've got to be so dialed in with the weather every day and forecasts and things like that and have all the resources available. They're generally the best ones to ask at a stadium about a forecast. Some teams have hired uh, professional meteorologists, which would be nice, you know, to kind of have that actual trained person in there to help you out. So during the game, it would be any kind of issues, and the communication would generally come from me if I see issues or a weather guy, uh, weather service calls that they have uh, contracted to the field manager at the stadium. That goes up a line of, of kind of communication. For our NFL games when I was there, the first point of contact was what we call the green hat. And this is a referee that sits on the sideline who's, as I understand the job, a liaison between the head referee on the field and the television production and game officials up there. So he's over on the sideline. If we saw some kind of weather incident he needed to know about, I would go over and inform him. He would go inform the lead official, and then decisions were made from there. Ross, we've seen artificial turf improve vastly from the early days. The first generation turfs were more about laying down a carpet almost directly on concrete. They didn't have the filler systems that we now see today with the modern generation turf systems. Why haven't we seen more teams adopt that? It's been heavily adopted on the college level. Are we likely to see the same thing happen uh, with the NFL or other pro leagues? You'd have to speak to each club and each city uh, situation is kind of different in the NFL. You know, some uh, facilities are still city run facilities. Different ones are run by clubs and things like that. I do know that, tip, you know, they. I don't think they do them anymore, but there used to be every two years player surveys um, done on playing surfaces throughout the NFL and there was always a strong preference when players were asked if they prefer turf to uh, grass, as they call it. Anywhere from 85 to even over 90% preference for natural grass really? from the players. Being around the guys and everything like that, most pro teams tend to practice almost entirely. Not entirely, but uh, predominantly on the grass fields, they say, to try to save their legs and things like that. So I think they think uh, their perception is it's a more forgiving surface, a grass field, uh, a little less wear and tear on their bodies. I think, you know, most stadiums, if they could, would like to, most people would like to have grass, um, you know, given the option, if all things were being equal. It's just not very feasible in some situations, some climates, you know, maybe an NFL stadium where two tenants are playing or something like that. Having said that, the technology for grass surfaces has just been growing and growing uh, for the last 30, 40 years. And so technologies in terms of thick cut sod repair on a grass field, for example, where you could literally change out a, a football field in, in a couple days with thick cut sod that could instantly be a nice playing surface for almost any sport. Ross, I want to wish you well, continued success, and uh, come on back. We'll uh, visit another day. Well, thanks, Bill, and thanks a lot for having me on.
Ross Kirkhab, our guest. Uh, for a long time, he managed the fields in Denver. And, brother, that is no easy task. And now has his own consulting firm, Championship Sports Turf Systems. Mark Madorn is standing by. We're going to talk shop right here on Blog Talk Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Let's roll up our sleeves and get at a time to talk shop once again. And in steps Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website. And a reminder for you, Stadiums USA is the nation's preeminent source for stadium information. We say it, you verify it by checking it out for yourself at stadiumsusa.com. Listen to the podcast of Stadiums USA Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. All right, Mark, here we go. You know, I stumbled into a video that absolutely stunned me. I've never seen anything like it. All I can say is Jerry Jones is back at it again down there. He's built a castle as an operational headquarters for the Dallas Cowboys, a new practice facility, but they also say the words world headquarters. And brother, is that right or not, Mark? <laughs> that really is. When Jerry Jones does something, he does it right, I'll cool. tell you. Uh, the uh, Dallas Cowboys owner has raised the bar again for other NFL teams. This week, the Cowboys moved into their new practice facility which is named The Star. With a $260 million price tag, The Star is state-of-the-art facility that includes the latest technology in the coaches' offices, in the training rooms, in the weight rooms, in the meeting rooms. Practices will now be at the Ford Center, a 12,000-seat stadium that's also going to be used for high school football for Frisco, which is the name of the suburb they're in, mm -hmm. Frisco Area High Schools. The Cowboys' previous facility was at Valley Ranch, was kind of a storied kind of location, uh, very famous by uh, made famous by all the teams that uh, worked out there and mm -hmm. the success that they had. That Valley Ranch was in use for 31 years, but this is now state-of-the-art, and the Valley Ranch was considered out of date. It looks like a corporate headquarters from the outside, like you'd see for a major corporation like a, a Sears or somebody like that. It's that big. It's amazing what they've done, and to say it's a facility that I think everybody's going to look forward to getting to work and, and uh, really getting the best out of their players. So yeah. if uh, they can be competitive with their players, they certainly have the facility that will make it happen. In Phoenix, Mark, the for sale sign is up on the home of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Now, we've talked about this situation before. What is the asking price, and what is it going to mean for the D-backs? Well, they should have not only put up the for sale sign, they put up the short sale or foreclosure sign because <laughs> it's, it's almost a fire sale. The Maricopa County officials have taken steps to sell the downtown Phoenix ballpark. They've signed a letter of intent with a group called the Integral Group for a purchase price of only $60 million. 
but you have to look at what's going on in relation to the background of all this mm -hmm. when you put the 60 million in perspective. The background of what's happening here is the Diamondbacks have a lease through 2027, but team officials have threatened to move before the contract expires. The problem between the team and the county is over upgrades and repairs that are needed at the venue to keep the team happy and competitive. There are lists of items totaling about $187 million that need to be taken care of over the next 12 years. The team proposed $64 million in refurbishment over the nearest five years that included things like replacing the scoreboards, renovating the party lounges, and some other items. County officials agreed to fund only structural repairs. In other words, repairs just to the uh, concrete and steel in the building itself. Mm -hmm. The county claims all the other expenses are just superficial. Chase Field opened in 1998. It is the fifth oldest ballpark in the National League. The potential buyer, the Inelgo Group, uh, is out of Atlanta, and they have agreed to make the stadium improvements over a two-year period. So that's what's going on in Phoenix, and uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens here. Yeah, but obviously the citizens of Maricopa County lose a little money in the deal, do they not? They certainly do, and uh, the team has some money in the game, too, because they paid for some of the construction costs of Chase Field. So I really like Chase. I know it needs a little work, but I think Chase is a wonderful facility, and I like the location in downtown Phoenix, too. So I'd really hate to see that go by the wayside. Yeah. More details were released, Mark, on just what the new Detroit Red Wings arena will look like when it goes online in 27-2018. Interesting that architects use some of the features of existing arenas when designing this arena, which will be known as the Little Caesars Arena. What's the story? The designers wanted to make the facility very intimate. They wanted the fans to be really involved. So to keep that intimate feel, they looked at all kinds of facilities around the NHL, and they decided that the Bell Center in Montreal had the kind of feeling that they wanted for their facility. Mm. So that became the model for the new venue. The fans are right on top of the hockey action in the new arena. The lower level seats for hockey uh, are 9,000 seats. That compares with only 6,000 at the current Joe Louis Arena. So there's an increase in 50% in the number of seats that are really close to the ice. Mm. There are 60 large suites in the building as well, and each of those seat 30. It's very corporate in design. The new arena is scheduled for completion in 2017, and I think it'll be a fantastic facility and really, really spruce up downtown Detroit. Back to Atlanta, Mark, where renovations are planned for the Phillips Arena in Atlanta. We don't hear very very much about this building. What does it mean now for the building's main tenant, the NBA's Atlanta Hawks? Well, the Phillips Arena is getting a pretty thorough makeover in the next couple of years. The arena is getting renovations that'll cost between 200 and $300 million. Wow. And that's a lot of work. Construction is scheduled to begin in the summer of 2017. Now, this affects the WNBA team, the Dream, that are moving to a temporary facility for two seasons. They'll be playing at the McCamish Pavilion at Georgia Tech. Mm. Uh, that's where their new home will be for a couple of years. No Hawks games will be affected by the move at all.
Mark, each week we take a look back on some of the significant dates in stadium history, and it's time to do it again. What do you have? This week, 1972, the White Sox Dick Allen becomes just the fourth big leaguer ever to hit a ball into the center field bleachers at Old Comiskey Park. Mm. And I'll tell you, been there many times, and that was a shot. <laughs> I'll say. He joins Jimmy Fox, Hank Greenberg, and Alex Johnson. In 1975, McNichols Sports Arena opens in Denver. Uh, Bill, any recollections of McNichols? Oh, you worked many, there? many. I did many ball games out of there. I always liked the arena. It was loud, and it was one of the first arenas that had what we would think of as close to a modern video scoreboard set up. That was embedded in the building. Uh, that was a nice old facility. Mm -hmm. McNichols was also the home ice for the NHL Rockies and the Avalanche. This week in 1983, the AAA Louisville Redbirds became the first minor league club to draw one million fans in a season. And that Louisville facility is great. I love that building. Mm -hmm. And this week in 1990, the Brewers-Blue Jays game at the Sky Dome in Toronto is delayed 35 minutes due to gnats. <laughs> the problem went away once they closed the Sky Dome roof, and then they turned the thermostat down and lowered the air conditioning, and then the gnats went away. That's just a few items from this date in stadium history. Oh, you hit all the highlights, don't you? Every one of them. We have the Nats. We have everyone. Oh, man. Well, good deal, Mark. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the summer at Progressive Field in Cleveland. <laughs> I'll do it today. All right, Mark Medora and We Talk Shop. Coming up next, there is a new documentary detailing the adventures of exploring every NFL stadium over a 16-week span. We'll talk with a man who did it right here on Blog Talk Radio. What would it be like to travel every city in the National Football League and see games there, the experience, just getting there, the logistics of it. We're going to find out from a guy who knows exactly what it's all about. His name is Rhett Grummetbauer. Rhett, you uh, took on a very interesting assignment here. You went all over the place. And if anybody wants to check this out, by the way, as we like to say, there is a video available. Before we get to that, let's just start with the basics. What prompted you to go ahead and make this uh, rather amazing sojourn well i i just grew up a, a football fan my entire life as you might expect growing up in texas mm -hmm. and uh it was just a great time to be a football fan in particular cbs sports had uh my team the dallas cowboys and john madden and pat summerall calling it and i and i got to see these stadiums that i just couldn't believe existed and they were to a young kid they're far away places that probably don't even exist only in your imagination hmm. and so i just kept going through life and uh finally decided it was time to leave my driveway and see what it was all about and take in the nfl before any of these stadiums were lost to improvements or anything like that first of all how do you manage to finance something like this and uh be able to set aside the time it would have been better for the documentary had I had a steady nine to five job and just walked out one day, walked into Hail Mary and we just took off. But I was actually a freelance worker and uh, had just saved up enough money. I thought I had enough money when we set out. Uh, and then you just buy tickets uh, as they go on sale, like in April up to July. 
and then hope for the best once you get out there. Do a lot of couch surfing, a lot of networking. And then once we, we got up to a certain point, it was like a tipping point where people started to find out about us. And then they wanted to welcome us into their house. But we spent plenty of nights in the VW bus itself. Uh, we spent the night in the parking lot of a hotel because there were no rooms in Pittsburgh. If you want a luxurious trip, this probably was not it or you needed a whole lot more money than we had. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you know, dreams don't necessarily take money. They just take effort and heart and uh, a, a relentless approach to uh, pursuing them. The documentary film is called 25,000 Miles to Glory. How actually close was it to 25,000? Probably right in that area, I would gather. Well, if our odometer worked, I could tell you to the mile. But since it didn't work, uh, (laughs) if you measure it out, it's like 26,149 miles. You're exposed to every region of the country and all the little eccentricities that are part of each region of the country. What did you come away with from that? Well, we're, we're all different. We all have our quirks. You mentioned the different regions of the country, and we were just in Canton, Ohio, to premiere the film during the Hall of Fame weekend. And that's an interesting place. But but all around this trip restored my faith in humanity. If you just looked at Facebook or look what's going on in the news It's all this doom and gloom. But when you get out there and people would meet you and the VW bus introduced us to a lot of different people, the VW community is extremely well connected. So if we were broken down on the side of the road, there was always that guy, Wild Bill Tucker in Florida, that would come out and help us get back on the road. And and for no other reason than just the love of a brand, the Volkswagen bus Mm -hmm. and, and helping somebody out. So you know, all along our path, we were introduced to these fantastic people and the NFL and team and fans of the teams want to be kind of divisive at times, but in the spirit of the game and in the spirit of humanity, it's just a wonderful experience to go to each different city and each different stadium and, and live the life of a fan of that team for one day. It was great. Well, Rhett, you know we cover the stadium's beat on this program, so we have a special eye on your observations regarding stadiums. You are one of the few people who can say, I've seen every stadium as it currently exists. I've been in all of them. What were your observations and what stadiums did you like the most? You know, there's always going to be the great stadiums. Like Cowboy Stadium is one of the best stadiums aesthetically. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's a lot of stuff going on there. So if you're interested in the actual football game, that may not be the best stadium for you. It doesn't it doesn't have the history of of football like some of the other ones do. Arrowhead was a great stadium and seeing everybody dressed in red for the Kansas City Chiefs and, and doing the tomahawk chop was great. And it's extremely loud. I think Seattle's a great stadium, a great, great fan base. And then seeing like the older ones, like Jack Murphy Stadium with those uh, flags blown in the in the breeze on the Pacific Ocean was was great. You know, people say, well, if you had one one place to go to, where would it be? And I would say Buffalo or Cleveland. It's not necessarily because of the stadium. It's how they celebrate having a football team, because, Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, expectations are not as high as they are in other places. But then you hear the story of the Superdome and the New Orleans Saints and how the Saints helped convince people to rebuild the city of New Orleans. So and what that stadium actually meant to that city, it was a shelter and then it was the homecoming and there's all these great places in it. And I talk about in the book where there's, it's just a hundred yard parcel of land, but it's everything surrounding that and the people and the energy and how they celebrate football. You were talking about in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. It it is different how people see and celebrate football in different stadiums. How many breakdowns did you actually have out there on the road? 
Uh, we had more toes than we had months gone from home. Oh, if that gives goodness. you any, any clue. We, we ran out of brakes three different times going down the road. Red, do you have a Twitter handle? It is 25K Miles to Glory, or you can find me at Phone Finger as well. Uh, you can email us through the website as well. So if you need to contact us or follow us on Facebook at 25K Miles to Glory. Sounds like a lot of fun. We wish you well and uh, continued success. What a story. It's fascinating. Well, I appreciate you having me on, Bill. And uh, yeah, I will definitely come back on and share our next story with you for sure. All right. Great. Red Grummetbauer, who has developed a wonderful documentary, and he has the shoe leather to prove it. 25,000 miles to glory in a 1967 Volkswagen bus named Hail Mary. And with that, we'll put the cap on the program for this week. Join us again next week for Stadium's USA on Blog Talk Radio. Thank you.